You can turn to Acts chapter 2, please. Acts chapter 2. Well, we are taking a break from the Gospel of Luke today, but we are not taking a break from Luke because the book we are looking at was written by him as well. This is his part two. Last Sunday, we looked at the Lord's Supper, and today we turn to the other ordinance or practice which Jesus gave to his church, baptism. Last week, we saw a new meal that he gave to his new people, and today we're going to look at how someone becomes a part of that new people. But let me start with a question. Why does our church's constitution require that a person be baptized before they become a member of our church? And just to clarify, I'm not attacking our constitution with that question. I agree with it. So, don't hear that in a negative sense. For most Christians throughout church history, this has been the practice. Baptism and then becoming a part of a church. But it may be that many people in Christian churches haven't thought why this occurs in this order. Why does baptism occur before church membership? Today we have the wonderful and joyful opportunity to baptize two sisters in Christ and then to receive them into membership in our church. Why are we doing it in that order? Why must baptism come before church membership? Keep that question in your mind as we go through our text today. And hopefully, I will answer it from the text as we go through our time this morning. Before we jump into our text, though, let me give you a little bit of background because we're jumping right into the middle of a scene and an event. You know, typically, week after week, we walk through a book of the Bible, and so we know what came before and we know what's coming today. But today, we're jumping in midstream, so it could be a little disorienting as to what's going on. So let me give you a little bit of background here. Last Sunday, we saw Jesus celebrating Passover with his men. Our text today falls on a holiday or a festival called Pentecost, which was seven weeks after Passover. So, in the intervening time between when Jesus celebrated Passover and when this event happens that we're going to look at today, Jesus is crucified, he's buried, he rises from the tomb, and then he appears to his disciples over the course of 40 days a little over a month. And then right before he leaves his disciples, he tells them to go back to Jerusalem and wait there until the Spirit of God comes on them. Then Jesus ascends to heaven. A few days after he ascended into heaven, all of his disciples are gathered together in this room and the Holy Spirit comes on them. There's this rushing wind that comes through and flames of fire 
dance on each of their heads to show that the Holy Spirit has come. Then they all begin talking in different languages. Now, as you might expect, a crowd gathers. Because when you hear a rushing wind, you're trying to figure out what's going on, and they gather, then they find this group of guys talking in all these different languages. And remember, at Passover and around these times of these festivals, you would have lots of Jews who come from all different parts of the world back to Jerusalem to celebrate. So you've got Jews from different countries who are all in the city, and they're hearing these disciples of Jesus speaking in the languages of their countries. And they're saying, what is going on? Are these guys drunk? What's happening? So Peter stands up and he begins to explain to them what's going on. And he says, this is the fulfillment of what the prophet Joel said hundreds of years ago. That in the last days, God's spirit would fall upon his people. And then Peter declares that all of this that they're seeing has been made possible because of one man, Jesus. And that's where we come into our text. Acts 2, verse 36, right at the end of Peter's talk. Peter says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children. And for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is God's word for us today. A shorter passage, but we'll take it in three headers. First, a message, then a sign, and finally, a door. So first, the message for baptism. Now, sometime after this event, the Apostle Paul is going to write to a church in the city of Rome, and he's going to say, faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. So this is what we get from Peter at the end of this sermon. We get a simple and powerful word about Jesus. It is the message which anyone must believe in order to be Jesus' follower. And what is this message? Well, three things that we see here in Peter's words. First, it is the message of a crucified Jesus. Salvation comes through a historic man who was executed in the first century. The historic man Jesus was humbled 
and slaughtered on a Roman cross. And he was put there by his own people, for Peter tells his Jewish audience that they crucified this man. The message is of a crucified Jesus. Second, it is a message of a risen Lord. Now, we see Lord right there in the text, in Peter's words in verse 36, but where do I get risen? Peter doesn't say anything explicitly about resurrection. But Peter is saying that God has made this historic man, Jesus, Lord. You can't make any dead person something. They're dead. So, Jesus, uh, so Peter implies that Jesus is no longer dead. He is alive. And God in heaven has made him the ruler of the universe and the master of everyone. So every knee should bow to Jesus because he is the Lord over all. Third, what is this message? It is a message of an exalted Christ. Peter says, God made the crucified Jesus both Lord and Christ. What does the, the title Christ mean? It means God's chosen one, God's anointed one, the one that God picked to carry out his redemptive work, his saving work. And so when Jesus died and rose again, he accomplished everything that God had planned, and therefore Jesus is God's forever king. He is exalted above everything, and he deserves the worship and praise of all humanity. That, in a nutshell, is the message for baptism. The message a person must believe and confess. And no doubt, some of those who were listening to Peter in this crowd had also been in the crowd over a month before who had cried for Jesus' crucifixion. Why do I assume that? Because he tells them, you crucified Jesus. And so what is the response of these listeners to Peter? Look down there at verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They were pierced with conviction. They knew they were guilty. They realized they had slaughtered God's chosen king. And so, what do they cry out to Peter? Brothers, what shall we do? And that should be the response of anyone who hears the message of Jesus. Because, yes, he was executed by certain people at a time in history but we can truly say that we humans, all of us, are the ones who crucified God's chosen King. The reason Jesus was nailed to the cross was to pay the penalty for our sins. It was your sins that hung Jesus on the cross and therefore you are responsible for His death. And as a result, you, like Peter's listeners, are in grave danger. But what is the answer that Peter offers them, which is the same answer that we get today? This brings us to our second header, the sign of baptism. 
Now, before I answer my own question, let me ask you another question. What do I mean by sign? What is a sign? Well, in Scripture, a sign is something which pictures, something which signifies a greater reality. A sign is a visible indication, a little peek or glimpse into an invisible reality. So here's an example. Think of a wedding ring. It can be really valuable or it can be fairly cheap. But it is not the point because it is a sign, it is a symbol, it is a picture of a greater reality. The union in marriage between a man and a woman. My union with my wife. Baptism in a similar way, is a visible picture of a great and invisible reality. So, back to our text, when Peter's listeners cry out, what shall we do? What does Peter say? Verse 38, repent and be baptized, every one of you. So what is baptism? It is a sign first of repentance. Now, if you've been with us through Luke's gospel for any length of time, you may remember that repentance is turning, a turning from my way to the Savior who can rescue me. So Peter says to the people, how can you be delivered from the guilt of slaughtering God's chosen king? Today, how can we be delivered from the guilt of slaughtering God's chosen king by turning from our own ways and by turning to the king who died to rescue us? And friend, if you have not done this, if you have never bowed your knee to the risen and ruling Jesus, then I urge you to do it today. If you do not, your guilt remains on you and judgment is coming for you but in his kindness this king that we have slaughtered offers us forgiveness so baptism is a sign of repentance of turning now we need to address this pairing that peter gives us right here when he tells his listeners what should you do repent and be baptized. We need to address why these are so closely tied together. Because it can also almost sound as if Peter is saying that baptism is a requirement along with repentance to gain salvation. Is that what Peter's saying? Well, I think many of us are used to talking about baptism separately from repentance, separately from conversion. You believe in Jesus, and then sometime later, you are baptized. And I think we do this with good intent because we are trying to guard salvation from having some sort of works element. Like, I have added something to this in order to gain God's favor. But even in our good intentions, I think we have to look back at what is What is the New Testament saying and how and why does it tie these so closely together? The New Testament doesn't separate 
repentance and baptism. In fact, it connects them so closely that Peter says, repent and be baptized. So why are they so closely tied? Well, let me read you this quotation from an author I found to be really helpful, and I think he puts it really well. And he basically describes what it would have been like to be in this crowd listening to Peter on that day. Here's what he says. Think about what baptism means in this setting, this crowd listening to Peter. You're in a crowd of Jewish people, some of whom called for Jesus' execution a few weeks ago. Jesus' disciples are causing a public spectacle, and they're calling others to join them by believing in Jesus and getting dunked in water right in front of everyone. To turn to Jesus in faith and baptism is to identify yourself with him and his followers and to distance yourself from those who reject him. You're being called to a public decision to follow Christ and that decision is sealed publicly in baptism. Baptism is how you go public with your newfound faith in Christ. Okay, so what is he saying? What is this author saying? Baptism is an expression of faith in Jesus. It's the way you show that you believe. So when Peter says, repent and be baptized, he's saying, repent and show that you believe. He ties them together. Repentance and faith go hand in hand. So baptism does not cause us to be saved. It is not a work which earns our favor with God. It is not a step which you must complete in order to have God accept you. Remember the thief on the cross next to Jesus? What did Jesus tell him? Today you will be with me in paradise. No baptism. What had that thief done? He had just turned to Jesus and believed in him. No baptism was necessary. So, in our well-intentioned efforts to try to make sure we guard conversion and repentance, let's not separate baptism too much from that because baptism is the way that we actually show what's happening in repentance and faith. Now, this doesn't mean that we're always going to dunk somebody as soon as they make a profession of faith in Jesus. There are often... And I would say probably most of the time, a profession of faith takes time to become clear that it is a true confession of faith in Jesus. But as we talk, we don't have to be nervous or scared about tying repentance and baptism together. And I think this is why, if you look down in verse 40, Peter says to them, save yourselves. Now, that could sound as though Peter is saying, rescue yourselves, forgive yourselves, redeem yourselves. But he's obviously not saying that. He's not telling them that they can actually rescue their souls. He's saying, get away from the destruction that's coming and run to the one who can save you. So think of this, think of this picture. Let's say a person is in the water and they're drowning, and they're crying out for help. Left to themselves, 
they cannot be saved. They cannot save themselves. But someone who has a rope or a life preserver may throw it to them and say, save yourself. Why would they say that? Because they're telling them, lay hold of the thing which can rescue you. In a sense, it's the person on the shore who is saving that drowning person. And even it's the life preserver that's saving that drowning person. But they save themselves by laying hold of the only thing that can rescue them. So, if you're familiar with Pilgrim's Progress, this was evangelist's plea to Christian. He said, get out of the city of destruction. Save yourself. This was the angel's plea to Lot and to his family. Get out of Sodom. Save yourselves. It's Peter's plea to these people. Save yourselves from this generation of wicked people who are going to experience the judgment of God. And friends, this is my plea to you today if you have not turned to Jesus. Lay hold of Christ. Run to Him. Turn away from the destruction that is coming and save yourself. That's what Peter is calling for. So baptism is a sign of turning, a sign of repentance and of laying hold on Jesus, the only one who can save you. But it's also, secondly, baptism is also a sign of forgiveness. Look back up at verse 38. Peter says, repent and be baptized every one of you. How? In the name of Jesus Christ. And why? For the forgiveness of sins. You find salvation only when you are plunged into the bloody death of Jesus. We baptize people in the name of Jesus Christ because there is no other name under heaven by which someone can be saved. And so in baptism, we show in a picture that this person has been united to Jesus and therefore has been cleansed from their sins. And that is why Peter can say, be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. No, Baptism does not forgive you. Baptism all by itself does not save you. But baptism shows that you have been forgiven because you've been united to the, to the Savior who cleanses you with His blood. Baptism is a sign of forgiveness. Third, baptism is a sign of new life. Why do I say that? Well, look down at the end of verse 38. After Peter says all these things, repent, be baptized, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, why does Peter say that? Well, remember this whole situation that's happening, all the crazy stuff that's going on, these sounds of rushing wind, and now this group of disciples are talking in these different languages. The Holy Spirit the Spirit of Jesus Himself had come upon them. And so the crazy sounds and sights, what we might think are crazy, they're just showing everybody around, God is here. God showed up. And He is in these men and working through these men. 
But Peter says the, the gift of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit coming upon people is no longer just for a few. You, if you turn to Jesus, you will receive the Holy Spirit. Because that's what the prophet predicted hundreds of years ago. That the Holy Spirit would descend on all of God's people who turn to Christ. So, in verse 39, what does he say? For the promise, or what, what promise is this? The promise of receiving the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for whom? For you, the people in Peter's audience, and for your children, the generations who would come, and for all who are far off, Gentiles, heathen peoples. So, possessing the Spirit of God is not something that just a few special people get. Since Jesus went back to heaven, we are in the last days. And in these last days, when someone turns from their way to Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes upon them and dwells in them. So Peter says, it's for you. It's for all the generations that come after you and for all the nations out there. So does that mean that everybody on the whole planet is going to be saved and have the Holy Spirit? No, because what's his last phrase in verse 39? Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Possessing the Spirit of God is something which happens when God summons a person to himself and they respond to that call. I love looking at uh, wax stamps or seals. Maybe you, you have seen this. Sometimes if people want to personalize a package or an envelope, they'll melt some wax and drip it onto the envelope's fold or the package's opening. And then what do they do? While the wax is still hot and fluid, they take a stamp, a handle with a flat plate on the bottom, and that plate is engraved with some sort of symbol or picture or letter. And they take that stamp, and while the wax is still hot, they press the stamp or the seal into the wax. And what happens when they pull it away? That picture on the stamp is now pressed into the wax. Well, what does that indicate? It indicates who has sent the package, and it indicates who that package belongs to until it gets to its destination. So brothers and sisters, when God gives His Holy Spirit to someone, that is His stamp, His seal, that that person has been united to Jesus and they are His. It's like God takes His Spirit and presses it into the wax of your person and now you are identified by this stamp, by the Holy Spirit who lives in you. God's stamp of someone's union with Christ is His Holy Spirit. But there's a challenge with this. Because can the people around see that stamp? Can you visibly see the Holy Spirit? No. Now, you can see fruit of the Spirit when it comes out of somebody's life, but you can't see the Spirit. So how can we know if someone is united to Jesus and is His follower? Well, what does Jesus tell his church to do? He tells his church to baptize 
people. The Spirit is God's stamp on a person. And baptism is the church's stamp on a person. You are identified with Jesus. And we believe you are his follower. And so we're stamping you with baptism to identify you in front of everyone that you are his. So, how would I sum up this whole point? Baptism is the sign or the picture of union with Christ. It's a way that we see who is connected to Jesus. Now, you may have noticed my my wording choice here just a moment ago. I said that baptism is the church's stamp of a person who is united to Christ. So that brings us to our final header, the door of baptism, verse 41. Now, before I get there, it can be really easy for us to think of baptism only as an individual event. This is something I choose to do. This is something I think I should do. And even in front of other people, it's something that's just happening between me and God or me and the pastor. But the New Testament's teaching is very different from that. So let's look at our final verse, verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. All right, so we got a couple of things here. Those who received his word. All right, so we talked about the message that you have to believe. People have received that message. They've believed in Jesus. Okay, we understand that. They were baptized. Okay, we understand that. This is the way that someone publicly declares, I am with Jesus. But what's this last thing about adding 3,000 souls? Is it just that another way of saying 3,000 people got saved? I don't think so. Because look at what comes next. We didn't read this earlier, but look at verse 42. And they, the ones who were added, devoted themselves to what? To the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So, the people who believed in Jesus and were baptized are now doing what? They are giving themselves to the teaching of the apostles and they're giving themselves to each other. What does that sound like? That sounds like they're in the church. So someone who believes the good news about Jesus is baptized in his name and then they are membered or added to his people, his church. Now, why is this the order? Why does it have to work this way? Well, I mentioned earlier that baptism is the sign of union with Christ. It pictures that someone has been connected to, united to Jesus and is following him. But that's not all baptism does because that could just be kind of like, oh, that's me. It's just an individual thing. I unite with Jesus, so I'm going to get baptized. But baptism has another facet. Baptism is the door into God's people. It's the way to get into Christ's family. To use our terminology, baptism is the way into membership. So yes, I have become one with Jesus, but now I'm becoming one with his people. 
So the New Testament knows of no Christian who is unbaptized. And the New Testament pattern is that every Christian who's baptized is membered to the church. So let me give you some illustrations as to how how this might work. Think about a hinge. What does a hinge do? Well, it does a couple of different things. It connects two things, so a door to a door frame, but it also allows the door to pivot in different directions and to emphasize different things. So baptism is a hinge. It connects two different things. It points toward conversion, that someone has believed in Jesus and is united with him, but then it also points to that a person has been united to Christ's people. It's both and. Let's think of another illustration. How about a team jersey? Some of you know that Josiah Parton plays soccer for Brevard High School. Now, is Josiah going to be able to play soccer if he shows up and doesn't have his team jersey? Probably not. Teams don't usually work that way. They don't just let some random person show up and walk on the field and start playing for them. You have to put on a team jersey. And in the same way, baptism is the church's team jersey. It's the way that the church says, you're on our team, come over here and play with us. Be a member of our team. And that is why baptism comes before membership, because you put on the jersey before you play for the team. But in a different, think about this also in regard to team jerseys. Let's say Josiah shows up to play his game. He puts on the team jersey and he's like, wow, this feels really comfy. I think I'm just going to wear this to bed. See you guys. I'm going to go take a nap. But wait a second, you've kind of lost the whole point of what the team jersey is for. You put on the team jersey to play for the team. So a Christian is baptized in order to enter the church and to be a part of the team, part of God's people. So if you are united to Jesus, you also unite with his people. The two cannot be separated. So baptism holds hands with conversion and baptism also holds hands with membership. They go hand in hand. Third illustration, this is the big header for this third point. A door. Well, what does a door do? A door can either give you access somewhere or it can bar you from gaining access to somewhere. And in the same way, if the church is a house and baptism is the front door, then you go through baptism to become a member of the church family. And you don't just push the door open and say, I'm coming in. The family, the church, says, we will open the door to you and welcome you into the family. So once again, all of these illustrations show that baptism is not just an individual thing. I'm just deciding to do this. It's time for me to do this. Well, hold on. Does the church agree with you? Is the church ready for you to take this step? 
Is it ready to open the door and welcome you in? Now, some of you might be thinking, but wait, a few chapters from now in Acts, there's this story of a guy named Philip, and he baptizes an Ethiopian eunuch, and they're out in the middle of nowhere. There's no church around. So the Ethiopian eunuch gets baptized by one single guy in the middle of nowhere and then just goes on his merry way. He doesn't get added to a church. Great point. Let's think about this. Who is this eunuch and where is he going? He's from Ethiopia. Where's that? It's pretty far away from Jerusalem. And Jesus told his disciples before he went back to heaven, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, then in Judea, then in Samaria, then to the uttermost parts of the earth. Well, at Philip's time, where has the gospel gotten? Where has the message spread to? It spread from Jerusalem to Judea. Philip preached in Samaria, but it hasn't gotten any farther than that yet. So this Ethiopian eunuch is going back to a faraway place where there are no churches and probably no other believers. So there's nobody to baptize him at home. So Philip has to baptize him because he's the first convert, the first follower of Jesus in his area. He's going to go back to Ethiopia. He's going to start making other disciples. They're going to gather together and then they're going to start baptizing people because they have formed a church. So the Ethiopian eunuch shows us how the gospel spreads into unreached places. It's not the way of showing how we do things in an established church. So let me give you one example later in the New Testament that I think could help us. Turn to Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4. We'll read a few verses here. Now, remember that most of the New Testament letters were written to whom? They were written not to individuals, most of them. Most of them were written to churches, gatherings of believers. And this is one of them. Paul writes to the church at Ephesus. And what does he say in verses 1 through 5? Look down at Ephesians 4, verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Okay, what's Paul saying? He's reminding them, hey guys, each of you has been stamped with God's seal, with the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit is on you and in you. That means you need to work hard to live well together because the, the same Spirit is stamped on each of you and holds you together. Okay? You're together. Look down at verse 4. And look how he says all these repetitions. There is one body, one church, one body that you are a part of. There's one spirit. We just said that. Just as you were called to one hope, one confidence for the future. You all share the same thing. One, verse five, one Lord. You've all believed in the same master. One faith. You all believe the same thing. And one baptism. 
You've all gone through the same water. So what's the point? Those who are baptized are united in the church. You don't get baptized and then go hang out all by yourself. You get baptized and you get united to Jesus' people. The New Testament doesn't know of a Christian who is unbaptized, and it doesn't know of a Christian. Its pattern is that Christians who are baptized are membered to the church. And so that's one of the reasons we're doing what we're doing today, where we're baptizing two sisters and then voting to welcome them into our church. They are associating with Jesus and saying they're united to Him, and we are stamping them with baptism to say, we believe you're one of us, now come join us and be a part of us. Now let me finish with just some really practical words, both about my practice in leading in baptism and some practical words for you. So here's my practice. I'm going to take church baptism on a case-by-case basis. So as somebody is converted, as someone believes in Jesus, and they want to pursue baptism, I say, come talk to me, and let's discuss it. And what I've done with these two sisters over the last few months is what I would do with anybody else. I give you a short study on baptism from the Scripture that you complete and give back to me, and I give you a short book on baptism to understand exactly what this is and why we do it, and who it's for. So, brief study in a book, and then I say, hey, come sit down with me, and let's talk. Let's talk about your understanding of the gospel. What do you understand Jesus did? And let me hear your story of how you came to faith in him. And those have been some really sweet conversations over the last few months, even as you heard this morning as they shared that with you. Then the third thing I would do is to help that person write out their story of God's grace, their testimony, so that they can share it with the church. Because ultimately, I am not the one who is affirming their testimony of faith in Jesus. It's not just between them and the pastor. And it's not just them affirming their own testimony in Jesus. Yeah, I'm good. Let me get baptized. No, it's us presenting them to you so that you as the church can say, yes, we believe that you are a follower of Jesus and we are glad to affirm your confession of faith in him. So that would be my practice as I seek to lead our church in this ordinance of baptism. Now, what about you? I've been talking about us as a church and how we together affirm this. Well, for some of you, that might be some new terminology how do we do this? I mean, we're sitting out here and we're just watching. How do we partake in this? We're not all up there like dunking one person together. So how do we do this? I say two things, two things to you. First, rejoice with them. And some of you, I mean, I hope all of you, but some of you started to do it even physically and verbally a little bit earlier. That's not inappropriate in a situation like this. And I would even say, when they come up out of the water, It is not inappropriate to celebrate verbally and even physically to say, amen, look what God's done. Do you remember several months ago in Luke, we were talking about how lost things are found? 
and how God rescues lost sinners? And what did it say that God does when a lost sinner comes home? There is rejoicing in heaven. So if there's rejoicing in heaven, and we all sit down here really serious and staid, we are not sharing the joy of our Father. Now, I'm not going to mandate what you do or don't do. I'm not going to be up there watching like who's doing what. But let's rejoice with our sisters that they are joining with, they have joined with Christ and they are joining with us. Second thing, welcome them. So after we baptize them, we're going to vote on on receiving them into membership. And I would say if what you have heard today causes you to affirm that they are confessing what is true about Jesus Christ and they are united to him, then welcome them by your vote into membership. And then let's continue welcoming them by praying for them, encouraging them, walking with them, speaking to them, because they're not on their own anymore. They're a part of us. They're a part of the body and we need each other to follow Jesus. So let's welcome them. Baptism is the sign, the picture of union with Christ and it is the door to unite with Christ's people. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this beautiful picture, this glorious sign that you have given to us. That this is what you have done within a person and this is what you are doing to unite them to us as your people. We pray that you would cause us to rejoice today in your saving work, your saving work in each of us who have known you and your saving work in these that we are welcoming today. And we pray that you would help us to understand more of this beautiful gift of baptism that you have given to us. So I pray that you would help us during this time increase our joy in you. In Jesus' name, amen.